Hey, I'm Ramel London. I'm a TV radio presenter and host, and I want to welcome you to the Mainstream Podcast. Today, I am super excited to speak with a comedian that's not only dominated the stage, but also the screen with his comical genius. From stealing the show as a Best Newcomer nominee at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2014, to becoming a regular panellist on all of your favourite TV comedy shows, he's now ready to take over 2021 with a tour and his brand new comedy entertainment show, Bamus, for the BBC. I am very excited to speak to Dane Baptiste. How are you, bro? <laughs> I am a good sister. How are you? I'm holding very good. Out here? Holding it down. <laughs> Staying safe nah. in these streets, I hope. Staying safe in these streets. 100%. We have to. But first and foremost, I'm so excited to speak to you and welcome to the mainstream. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's nice to be in the mainstream. Thank you. You are indeed. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Um, but I want to go to the beginning because I feel like you're a man that's very honest. So I know anything I ask you, <laughs> you're going to give me the realness. And please do feel free to just give all the gems because that's what we love here. And um, particularly, I want to talk about how did it all kind of start for you? And how does someone find out if they are funny without coming across as like a complete like narcissist? <laughs> It's a good question. It's a very good question. Um, I'll answer that one first. For yeah. me, it was kind of, I really wouldn't be making, so it's when I was kind of getting an idea of how my comedy works, it wasn't really based on me trying to necessarily say funny things all the time. Right. I think for most people, we all tend to use laughter and comedy as rapport builders and icebreakers, especially when yeah. it comes to either public speaking or being introduced to new situations. So I grew up in Southeast London and I grew up in an area that I did not have a lot of representation. So I find okay. like a lot of people, when you're trying to rationalize where you feel like you're kind of an outsider, uh, being funny and, and using comedy and busting jokes is a great way to endear yourself to people and rapport build with people where you're not able to kind of uh, find a commonality with them based on like having a similar heritage or having yeah. similar beliefs or having a similar background. So that was kind of the part of it. But I think as I got older, and I guess when you become a lot more cynical in your teenage years or adolescence, when I would talk about stuff that kind of irked me, people would kind of laugh Okay, and yeah. I'm talking about stuff that would actually bother me. And I think I'm known for being kind of somewhat of a nitpicker. And mm. uh, like, yeah, I'm very vocal about something if I don't like it. Yeah. And, you know, so I think a lot of people kind of laugh. Sometimes I guess maybe at the absurdity or the brashness of that stuff I'd complain about. But I think a lot of the time, I'll be, people found out it's quite accurate. But if I had misgivings about something, normally the uh, it would turn out the way I kind of predicted it. So... <laughs> I love that. You divide people with people that kind of be like, they knows what he's talking about. And then people who don't like to be told, I told you so. Yes. And not that I tell people I told you so a lot of the time, because I've evolved to the point where I can just do that with my eyes. But um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like it was a big part of, yeah, my home truths, people used to kind of laugh at maybe the delivery of those. So when yeah. I began doing comedy and my first gig I ever did was actually in 2006 at Kojo's Comedy Funhouse. Okay. The first time I ever got on stage. And um, I remember two weeks before I went to actually watch the show and um, a guy died very badly. Oh. <laughs> well. Like, like uh, literally no laughs. I mean, his friends laughed and sometimes oh. that's even worse because it's like, well, they're only laughing because they're your friends. Yeah. And that makes it worse because it, like, it would be like, you know, a pin drop and then someone would just be creasing. And oh um, yeah, it was made it very difficult. Um, to have the confidence but I spoke to the guy because I was like you know from novice to having experience like this guy still streets ahead of me and um he was kind of like yeah you know I think I did all right I didn't die 
physically, and I was like, I mean, that's kind of morbid, but you literally. That's true. But I remember chuckling at that and thinking, there you go. When he was actually honest and this was like, he didn't give a shit. Then it was quite funny. So yeah. when I began writing my first ever five minutes to do comedy, I was trying to write fun, funny stuff and trying to write catchphrases and punchlines. And it wasn't really working when I recited it back. Yeah. Again, when I actually started writing about things I felt were true to myself and uh, things that I felt I genuinely believed in, then I was more comfortable with what I was saying. And so it was a very part of, early part of the learning curve was that it's really about comedies in the delivery. Yes, 100%. Yeah, so when I, when I went there, that gig went well. And then I kind of like, I suppose not about, did about four or five gigs in total because I didn't really know what I was doing and then left it because I was still working at the time. Okay. And then, yeah, I think 2008 was when the credit crunch happened. Yeah. And, you know, culturally, um, I think, I guess you and I have a similar extraction where our parents aren't necessarily that open to the creative industries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, the idea of a job that doesn't have a regular paycheck and a pension and benefits yeah. is basically like speaking in Mandarin to my parents so, yeah and I, and I internalize that a lot because you know culture you want to be you know make your parents proud and uphold like you know the tenets of your culture but 2008 happened and the credit crunch happened and for me I studied like business and I said I'm always been a civic since I was a teenager yeah I just remember just thinking well the global economy has collapsed, so there's no such thing as a real stable job anyway. So, and I felt like, because I guess that's the endeavor of most regular people is like, you know, have a job that's able to pay for a lifestyle, which would include having a home, raising a family. Yeah. I just looked around at a bunch of people who did this their whole lives and then found at the end of it, they may not even have a pension. So I was like, well, that in itself is somewhat of a joke. <laughs> I think Very true. My outlook philosophically changed where I just stopped taking stuff seriously. And, uh, you know, I began to kind of do a lot of reading and research. And yeah. I suppose, you know, where people who go too far down conspiracy um, theory rabbit holes on YouTube will end up becoming QAnon. I didn't really go that far. Yeah. But I just kind of wanted to know about the threads that make up our social fabric. And I was just kind of like, you know, hey, to myself, I don't want to get to a point in my life where I am either too physically or psychologically drained to change my life or be in a position whereby I actually want to do something, but I can't because I have dependents in the form of uh, a family, like children. Yeah. And so I was like, well, you know what? If there's going to be a time, now is the time. So I, then when I did that, I was like, you have to be aware that you are going to be show business as an industry. Oof, yeah. So it's different. I spent a lot of time looking at the industry. And all, and all these things are good because they're also great ways from procrastinating when you're scared of actually doing stuff you want to do. Yeah. So you find a lot of people when they're like, oh, I want to act. So they go and do like a, th- a degree in uh, theatre. They do a master in theatre. And it's like, those are fine, but you'll never know until you actually do it. So exactly. I, but I, did, but I actually have to do a lot of um, research because I, obviously the elephant in the room being that I'll be a black man mm. comedy in the UK. And I guess in 2008, there was not a lot of that around. Yeah. And I think the last time you seen an example of it had been Richard Blackwood, who yeah. had been killed from the body industry yeah. so, and uh, was really kind of being pushed as a uh, cautionary tale. Wow. So it was kind of, oh, so how has it been done? And obviously, you know, you had Lenny Henry, but hadn't had an offering for a very long time. Yeah. So I, at the time, I mean, I'd say that my comedy idols and they still, I would have been like your Chris Rocks and your Dave Chappelle's. Yeah, yeah, and of course. I did all this research, I was kind of like, okay, these guys, they, they study the craft and they actually... Like, um, they should went to Duke Ellington School of Arts because I'd been winging it before and I've done specials here and there. Yeah. So, yeah, I hadn't actually done, I hadn't actually done anything. So I decided to do a little bit of research because I was like, I know what kind of comedian I want to be. I know what mm. I want to talk about. But in order for you to do comedy properly, you kind of have to do the research. 
So where I've seen like, okay. my American um, predecessors talking about race relations, I kind of was like, that's cool. They've done it very well. But if I'm going to do it, I need to do it in a very different way and have a very different approach, especially because I have to look at the layout of where I am. Yes. And the layout of the land in the UK is very different to the US. And so one of the first things I noticed was that when people discuss race relations in America, African-American is a recognized, galvanized identity of yeah. all immigrants from the diaspora. Whereas Black Britain isn't that much of a recognized cultural identity. People will yeah. say, where are you from, from? And that will lead to all these, <laughs> whether it's like, you know, the Caribbean or West African places, uh, you know, yeah. or even obviously we place that Somali and stuff. But no one normally says, oh, I'm a Black Br- British person. Yeah. And yeah. I also noticed that because that aesthetic had disappeared from TV and like me studying at university, I went to university in like West Yorkshire. I could see there are a lot of people who their encounters with Black people other than on Match of the Day yeah. was pretty much zero. <laughs> Not, Fair not, enough. Want to, it just doesn't happen. There's, there's yeah. not a lot of black people in certain parts of like Tyneside. There's not a lot of black people like, you know, in a place like Middlesbrough, you just don't have a lot of black people on the border of Wales. So a lot of people there, but that doesn't necessarily mean these people do not buy into black culture because yeah. 75% of all patrons of hip hop, for example, are non-black people. So he was kind of like, I was aware that if I'm going to be transcending into the mainstream, it almost has to be kind of like a comedy or a black people 101 because I'm reintroducing yeah. people to a contingent of our culture they've not seen for a long time. That's so very interesting. Wow. The reason I'm saying all that, Ramel, as well, is because when I started doing comedy now, when we would have met and done gigs and stuff, is that yeah. when I found a lot of bit of difficulty having traction with audiences, I only realized on reflection later on that like I started doing comedy when I was like 28. Okay. But most people I before were like 21, 22. Yeah. And the gap between being 22 and 28 mat- of maturity is a very big one yeah I know that because yeah. when I graduated how I thought when I graduated from uh university compared to when I was at 28 years old a lot had changed yeah it was very hard yeah. for me to kind of relate that to a lot of the people that were watching me at first but um I kind of chose to persevere with it because I, I kind of knew with the longevity is that like you know many few years down the line you'll get to a point where all the stuff I'm saying is going to make a lot, makes a lot more uh, a lot more sense to you Definitely, um, definitely. But at the same time, I also wanted to prove a point to myself because I, when I began interacting with some of my peers, like they, there was kind of stigma where it's like, there's certain things you can't discuss in the black circuit or if you talk about certain things, people don't really care. Mm. And my whole thing was, well, I'm black and I get it. So why can't I do it? So, <laughs> I hear that. Yeah, it was, it was, and it was somewhat uphill. Yeah, of course. Um, but I had to, um, you know, I think everything worth having, and especially if you're doing something that people haven't seen for a very long time, yeah, it's always going to look very different. It's going to be very hard for people to be able to um, identify what you're saying. Definitely. Um, but it definitely continued, and, and it, it taught me to have to like get better and stuff like that as well. Yeah. Well, and, then while, and then while I did it, I was like, well, again, I want to now really treat this and apply myself to something I actually wanted to do, which I hadn't really yeah. done with comedy or anything that much before because I hadn't found my calling. So when I started doing comedy and I was like, let's give it a go, I started creative writing at the London School of Journalism. Nice. Uh, so improv at a comedy school. I've done um, like improv with Second City. Then I did like a writing course. And then I did a stand-up comedy course. What? And- I didn't know they existed. Yeah, neither did I. Neither did I until I started doing the Google research and stuff and found this place, which was double as like a workshop as well as like they do outreach programs for like inmates and for, you know, people with special needs and stuff. So essentially allowing people artistic expression through the medium of comedy. And wow. so I found out about them and the comedian, Mr. C, um, he was a mentor there. Nice. I remember meeting with him and the head of the comedy school, Keith Palmer. And, you know, Keith, again, is not someone you've heard of, or see that often, but Keith has 
great relationships with like you know Harry Enfield, um, okay. White House, Phil Jupiter's Judith Jacobs from Real McCoy, wow. and then you know Andy Osho, and then the fact that like Kojo was there as well. So a lot of people would have had interactions. Axel Axel Blake. So a lot of people would have had interactions and kind of honed it as well. Yeah. And I just remember speaking to them and telling them about my journey in comedy so far. And they were just very honest and were kind of like, if you really want to do this, you don't sound like you're really applying yourself. Mm. So they were very honest about that. And so, yeah, I just had to pull my finger out and then really start studying the craft. And at the end, they gave us like a list of like uh, open mic nights to go and perform at after we did like a showcase. Okay. And really the rest of the present, I started then and I haven't stopped since. That's amazing. That was, uh, yeah, that was 2000 and... Wow. See, that's the thing. I'm sure there's a lot of people, like we said, that don't know that there are actually courses to help you become a comedy writer, to be a stand up comedian, which is incredible. And it sounds like you put in the work, like the theoretical work, the the, the historical work of it all as well. well. Yeah, exactly that. Because and, and you know what? And it's because like I it was for two reasons, because I was aware of kind of the social um i guess it's kind of the social layer of the uk yeah and i said i was aware that you know i am coming from a generation whereby initially we had loads of representation and mm. for a large part of the generation we had none yeah that was running along and that was happening at the same time where like you know richard blackwell doesn't got a show anymore opportunities for comedians aren't existing anymore yeah gina yashray for example she just she was a writer on lenny henry's show she doesn't get yeah. an opportunity so she goes to the states yeah and so that's happening as well this is like you know, early 2000s is when Idris has just come off the back of the wire. Yeah. And then at the same time, it's like, you know, if you're a music star, like I remember they're closing down raves. So yeah. like, performers, they can't perform anymore. So then everyone's like grabbing towards Funky House because it was perceived to be less offensive and like <laughs> less and stuff. And so, yeah, it was just like, I just noticed a few like generational rifts amongst the diaspora. Wow. And because I've gone to uni out of London as well, I yeah. also noticed that, if you live in like a metropolis like London or Manchester or Bristol or Birmingham, yeah. you're spoilt for cultural reflection. Like if you're a black person living in uh, London and you want Ethiopian food, there's someone you can go for that. If you want Nigerian yeah. food, you can go for that. Whereas Definitely. if you are a black person living in Norwich, yeah. you don't have that. It's going to be hard. <laughs> it's going to be very, very hard. Yeah. And I noticed that with a lot of comics, for good reason, like obviously comedians will talk about their cultural experiences yeah. to audiences like who look like themselves because you want something that reflects you and reflects your experience. Yeah. But I was aware that there are some black people just based on geography alone mm-hmm. don't have that experience. Definitely. But I don't want their experience to be invalidated. Exactly that. Exactly that. I also noticed that like a lot of the narrative from stand-up comedy in this country kind of had migrated from like nightclubs. I yeah. Felt like a lot of the black comedy clubs were kind of from people that would have been doing club nights and then so in the same way that a lot of the narrative from the music had also migrated into the uh, into comedy, which kind of meant that certain elements of the diaspora may yeah. felt marginalised because if you're from the LGBT community, you may not want to hear people regurgitate what they hear from dancehall artists. So Fair. again, <laughs> I saw it, yeah, but I saw it as that, but they're black too, so their experience is exactly the same. And I don't want to have a narrative which has its, which really may have its roots in culture, but really has its roots in Western European Judeo-Christian fundamentals, mm. so which we kind of repeat. But I looked at it like this: like I don't see if we're going to exclude black, lesbian, bi, non-binary black people. They have money. They have the same experiences as myself. So I want to make sure that my narrative, even though it may not be too nuanced to a black audience that sees black people all the time, yeah, to an audience that don't really are around a lot of other people and do have to deal with a lot more uh, severe 
uh, identity politics. Mm. I to be their politician, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's interesting that you're kind of talking about the different experiences and um, what we know of as the black comedy circuit, because you're a black man, of course. <laughs> and how have you kind of navigated yourself as a black comedian? Because I do feel like, you know, there have been certain com comedians who end up getting restricted to just yeah. the black comedy circuit. You've excelled in an incredible way, being on all of our favorite TV shows like Mock the Week, Eight Out of Ten Cats. Um, you know, these the these ex exact hosting live at the Apollo. Like you know, again, I I don't want to focus on you being a black man, but uh, again, we can't avoid the fact that, like you said, you've navigated your way into the wider mainstream and. I don't feel like you're the black comedian. I know you as Dane Baptiste. And how do you feel like you've navigated that to to not make, even though you speak about race a lot, to not make yeah. it be that? Well, yeah, I, I guess it was just, I get it's a natural uh, technique I had to learn throughout my life anyway. Um, mm -hmm. I always find myself, like I said, I, I didn't grow up in a particularly predominantly black area initially when I grew up. Right. But then I, but then when I was in secondary school as a teenager, I was also spoiled for, like I said, cultural indicators. So I went from being the only black kid in my class in primary school yeah. to me being one of like eight other black men in my secondary school class. Okay. So then I was kind of spoiled for it. But at the same time, I was aware that there are a lot of people like me who may have had their beginnings where they have not been spoiled for cultural indicators. So it was kind of like, I suppose the easiest way to describe it was just like, what if I was watching a black British comedian, what, what would I want to hear from them? Yeah. So I didn't want to be somebody who, like I said, wanted to reduce... Uh, black people to the normal kind of uh, I guess stereotypical narratives yeah um, I felt like a lot of comics were were worried about not being well received so they would keep the spectrum of topics they would discuss very narrow that's fair and that wasn't something I wanted to do so yeah I think very early on in my career I would I would speak in a way where I'm like I do want to validate my culture yeah but I don't want us all to feel like we're limited by this because if any because you know as I said even though there's black people in London, uh, yeah. uh, all the black people that aren't in London, I didn't want them to feel like this was inaccessible to them. And Definitely. I also feel like obviously by the same token, the same way that like white culture in the UK is very nuanced by region, by, um, you know, by geography, by religion, by yeah. socioeconomic status, uh, black people are no different. Exactly. So I just kind of wanted to create, I suppose, a, uh, a very basic narrative that everybody else could kind of build on. And I noticed when I performed in predominantly black rooms, yeah. you know, there was a lot of amazing animation and showmanship. And the way I describe it is that with black rooms, it's kind of <laughs> like with music. So okay. with black rooms, they listen to the beat and not the words. But <laughs> okay. the rhythm. Yeah. Whereas obviously the kind of stereotype is that white people listen to the words and not the beat. Yeah. Now this actually translates very well to the comedy whereby- I'm so intrigued. <laughs> so a lot of black comics are very animated and have amazing showmanship. Right. So when they come on stage, it's already a hype. But then because of that, because the hype's more around the performance of stuff, what they're saying a lot of time really only scratches the surface of what they might want to cover. I get you. Whereas you find a lot of white comics within that environment are able to kind of be very dour and very static and very deadpan. Yeah. But people are just waiting for them to get to the punchline. Yeah. So I guess what I had to do then was find a way whereby I could allow for this sensibility from white rooms to work in black rooms. So I'm not a very dynamic comedian I'm not, and I'm very static on stage and very deadpan yeah. because I wanted to open up that black palette to this style of comedy so that when 
black comics that play the mainstream wouldn't feel like I can't perform in black rooms because they only want you to talk about certain things. And I could be like, well, no, if you do this, now they're open to it. Exactly. And I don't, and also in a way, I felt like by me not doing that, I'm patronizing my audience. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes people, and this is all part of all our own internalized self hatred. A lot of people are like, you can't discuss these certain things with black people because if you do, they're not going to feel it. But it's like, mm-hmm. well, so the fuck what? I'm not on stage to tell them what they want to hear. I'm on stage <laughs> to tell them what I think. Yeah. They don't agree. It's fine. It's not about, like, it's not a court case, isn't it? It's just what I think. <laughs> you can laugh, it's dumb. You can laugh, it's funny. But that's the point. But I yeah. wanted to make sure that it was just open, whereby I wanted to open up this black audience mm. to, you know, a wider world. And because, you know, however people feel, we are known as a group for always innovating on entertainment and culture. So yeah. why should we deprive it in this area? And I guess by the same token, I wanted to demonstrate by example that the black comics who I'd seen, mm. who were so gifted in terms of their showmanship and their performance, in terms of their innovativeness, in terms of deliver their material, I want them to understand that this will translate to white audiences as well. Yeah. So even though you may not have historically seen people that look like us on TV, by beginning to make these inroads onto into mainstream or predominantly white rooms, yeah. then you know that's just the beginning. Because if we begin to open up people's palettes, at least as with boots on the ground, then they'll be more vocal about wanting to see the same thing on screen. Definitely. And that's all kind of proven now, whereby because social media has given us so much democracy of voices, you're seeing the emergence of younger acts now who are able to take advantage of that, where they have big followings and they and yeah. you know, because when I first started doing comedy, I can't imagine TV stations giving someone like Big Nasty a TV show. I hear that, yeah. I hear that. But because he has now been able to open himself up to a larger audience who can validate that his appeal right. alongside Mo, he can't, he can't be denied anymore. Yeah, exactly that. So I guess I was trying to get kind of get that head start on it whereby I was like, people will like this if you bring it to them. You know, if, yeah. you, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. So that was kind of my, my, my whole approach was, but like, but again, the main thing was that just given, you can see this, the racial tensions that we see in society now, yep. which things that I saw a very long time ago. Yeah. But that wasn't just, but that doesn't just come from people willing, being willingly ignorant. It's very hard for you to form a perception of something you don't see. Okay. You've got to depend on what you see in the news. Yeah. So I had to kind of an approach where like two like predominantly white audiences would be like, this is black people 101. And <laughs> yeah. kind of being like, because it's been 20 years. Yeah, yeah, 20 yeah. Years, that's a few years short of a generation. So you've had a whole generation of white audiences who have not been able to um, get, you know, normalize a black presence on their TV or in their media for a very long time. That's and so I didn't, I couldn't, and, and what used to happen as well is that, like, if you try to take the approach of almost being accused when you're talking about racism, like the white white critical contingent of comedy will try and reduce it and be like, well, they're just trying to do what uh, the Americans do with Def Jam comedy or trying to be Chris Rock and yeah. reduce what we did. And that's always been a big part of the oppression for uh, the diaspora in this country is that we may not deal with the same very uh, overt violence that you see African-Americans dealing with in America. Mm-hmm. But what we deal with is a different marginalization where, exactly. I can put it, Americans are like, what? Black people? Whereas British people are like, what's black people? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's no problem so here. Like, exactly. So my thing was just like, you know, having to find a very <laughs> subversive, because and, and, and that's a very British thing. Remember, British, uh, British speech in itself is very much more about subtext and sarcasm rather than mm-hmm. being very overt and blunt about things. Yeah. So I had to kind of observe the same sensibility where I'm kind of like, it's more about what I'm not saying. Yes, that people exactly. Will into. Exactly. So, find the ver- so a lot of times so I had to develop very uh, subversive and sometimes surreal ways of describing the uh, Black British journey so that audiences get used to it because they've been weaned on like surreal comedy and like satire exactly. for so long. So I had to use the same approach 
and almost do it in the same language as them so they can understand. And then by that same token, like I said, if their palates begin to open, yeah. then it becomes less of an acquired taste. And they're like, well, what's, what's Dane's okay, well, what's more like that, that version in the form of a woman or in the form of a younger version or in the form of, you know, someone who's from the continent of Africa or someone who's from the LGBT community. And, yeah. and by, by the same token, like I said, when I spoke to my black peers who were performing in primarily white rooms, mm-hmm. who maybe felt like their style of comedy would obscure them from a larger black audience, had to show by example to them as well that you can be this person and play to a black audience. Yeah, exactly. You won't lose any sensibility of who you are. And so, yeah, that's kind of the idea. It's like, yeah, trying to be, I was trying to do this, you know, when Kanye with his early stuff, where he was trying to take like street rappers like Twister, make them work with like conscious rappers like Talib Kweli. Yeah. And I kind of did the same thing with com- black communities that played mainly white rooms. Yeah. And black communities that played mainly black rooms and be like, well, this is comedy. This is, at the end of the day, we shouldn't even call this black or white rooms. They're all comedy rooms. Exactly. Exactly. So it's about me trying to merge all of those worlds. That's beautiful. I mean, you've been described as being an observational comic and it makes perfect sense, which leads us perfectly to Bamus. Now, you have literally, um, like you said, given us Black People 101 on how our scene has been changing over the years, which is incredible. Uh, I've been able to get that kind of sneak peek look. Oh my gosh, I laughed, I loved. Um, so tell us about this brand new entertainment show, we got to call it, that's being produced and released on BBC. What is Bamus? <laughs> so Bamus is, uh, industrially is a uh, collaboration between my own production company, John's Boy Entertainment and uh, Spirit uh, Studios, awesome. uh, which is going to be shown on BBC from uh, the 12th of January, uh, from 6am on the iPlayer. And Bamus is basically continuing the work we were discussing where I um, felt like uh, there's always a stigma amongst, uh, I suppose, black audiences and peers alike, whereby right. going main- mainstream, and I guess why the suffix of it is stream is because once you emerge yourself, immerse yourself in it, you become diluted. Okay, okay, so fair. I felt a lot of the time there was a stigma where if you start being appreciated, like for example, people say like, talk about Anthony Joshua. Yeah. If you talk to a lot of friends, they're like, his name is Femi, bruv. <laughs> Yeah. Let me call you this British thing. He's called AJ. Man's <laughs> name is Femi, bro. He's Nigerian. So yeah, you know, but it, it, I guess it's, it's always been the uh, I suppose the cross the bear of black creatives mm. or, uh, black, to be able to try and balance these both worlds. Where historically we've known that normally you transcending into a mainstream arena normally means having to compromise or turn your back on your heritage and your um, you know and I suppose people that kind of built you up in the first place yeah so, so it means you become famous but like black people don't really fuck with you yeah so famous is the idea that was about the idea that there is a way of being able to be black and famous okay so is a combination of both of those words where you can still be the national treasure still be yeah. a british institution without any losing any sensibility of who you are yeah because i think at this stage socially black culture now in here is also british culture yeah so again continuing that work famous the idea was for me to celebrate um, racial, the state of race relations in the UK, rather than always talking about it from a scrutinizing um, perspective. You know, we've been here for a very long time. Yeah. And I think given given the social climate where we are reflecting on, you know, the presence, our presence in terms of like the Windrush scandal, in terms of like Small Acts being an anthology of the journey, um, you know, I just wanted to take that same narrative and put that comedic slant on it because I said, comedy is normally one of the best ways to break the ice and begin yeah. the poor building. So, Bamus, the idea was to be like, you know, I am endeavouring to become a national treasure. I want to be I love you know, that. considered one of the best. 
best comedians of my entire generation, but still be able to do that and be able to walk on a stage in a room full of black people and then not feel like I've sold out. Yeah. So it's about kind of how I can achieve that. So the show is basically looking at a black print for success. Okay. So on the one hand, it's kind of looking at people that went before me and, you know, there's, and like I said, there are, there are preceding generations of people that have helped to shape and provided opportunities and essentially they've crawled so I've been able to walk. Yeah. And in the same way, I see that now there's a lot of my successors and younger generations that are flying in some ways. So I want to be able to highlight that as well. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, I just didn't want that to be that culture rift where people my age are like, they don't know to do it like we used to do it. But it's kind of like what you're seeing them doing is where we wanted it to go. Exactly. You know, and I just felt like it's a weird thing where because there's such an emphasis on youth culture with uh, black creatives and so few spaces. Yeah. It's like always fighting for this thing where it's like, it's too old now. It's my time now. And I wanted to kind of get rid of that where it's like, there's no reason why we can't all coexist and exactly. all aspire towards legendary status. So that was the idea of Bamus is that like, you know, the phrase is kind of like, you know, giving people their flowers. Yeah. So is a comedy show that works as a black British florist. I like that. I like that. <laughs> Give them their flowers at Bamus. <laughs> I love it. And like, obviously, you have literally created like a big link up of comedians. Um, you've got um, Tucson Douglas, Munya Chihuahua, Lola Jagan, um, Tania Moore, or Tanya Moore, sorry, um, Kay Kurd's involved as well. These are all amazing comedians that are already doing great stuff or are just about to blow kind of vibes. Um, for anyone that wants to get into the industry and get noticed like these guys have to be in this show, what are your top five tips to make it in the mainstream as a comedian? A um, little bit of advice. My first advice would be artistically would be do it because you love it. Don't do it to be famous. Don't do it to be recognized. Don't do it for likes. Do it because you love it. Because once you achieve all of those things, which are metrics to measure success, they will all so become natural and regular and kind of normalized. So they won't remain to be your motivation. So always allow your love for what you're doing to be your prime motivation. Yeah. By that same token, self-love is so important. So you be true to yourself. Do not try and mold yourself into what you think people want you to be. Mm-hmm. You just focus on who you are and what you want to create. Because again, as time goes on, when you do become successful, you don't have to think about what you're wearing or how you look because there are people who orbit that industry or your brand. You know, yeah. there's amazing, you know, for example, um, uh, Life of Shaz, she's a, um, she's a makeup artist that works on Bamus. Okay. I call it. I call her a BLM UA because uh, she understands that like uh, black skin matters very, very it's much. very it's very different. It's just, <laughs> we need different. different. Yeah, so from that side, like, like working with that kind of talent as well, that you recognise, you know, the richness of melanin and how to represent that best aesthetically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, self love. So a kind of what I say to people is that you know you are trying to do what you want and express stuff how you feel. So again, be true to yourself. And mm-hmm. by the same token, my advice following that would be. Be self-aware and be honest. Yeah. Doesn't mean you have to be truth and tell the truth all the time, but have an honesty with yourself in terms of like, be aware of what your potential is, be aware of what your limitations are. And no, limitations are a bad thing. It means at least you're giving yourself goals towards, aspiring towards. And, you know, in terms of your potential, by that same token, do not allow anybody to tell you otherwise if you've had the potential. But that involves you being honest about who you are and what you want to do and um, about your intentions. And, um, yeah, as I say, I think don't worry about money. Okay. Because again, uh, I find that it's always seen as a key indicator of success and it's not the same in the same way that like fame and success are not the same as well. Yeah. Because everyone can know who you are. doesn't mean you're successful or that you're happy. Yeah. The same thing as having money is that you can be rich doesn't mean you're happy. 
if you know your wealth has had to come from or your riches have come from, come from you burning bridges or turning your back or betraying people then I mean you'll afford a mansion but you'll find they'll be echoing when you're sitting there by yourself definitely and, definitely um, and if that's not enough uh do you know how much money Tupac had when he died boy I actually don't know but I'm I feel like it was a lot yeah. but you don't know because it doesn't fucking matter yeah <laughs> Facts. He's not here to spend it, and that is not what we think of when we think of Tupac. I don't exactly. think, about, think about his bank account. You think about his influence on his art or what mm. his narrative was. Yeah. So, you know, if you are someone who's genuinely trying to achieve status and recognition for what you're doing, it won't be based on the money that you earn. So don't worry about that. Definitely. Say that because, um, again, coming back to having fun with it. And I think that's the most important thing is that always allow your love of this or your enjoyment of what you're doing to be your primary motivation because there may be a time as COVID is proving when yeah. you might not be able to monetize your talent. Yeah. So you may only be doing it just for the love for a little while. That's very so true. That's what will keep you going. That is a life lesson. Infinite. So that's my advice, man, is just to enjoy it. I think I think I always try and give advice from the perspective, especially because I had no fixing on becoming a professional comedian. Oh, wow. So I didn't see anybody that looked like me. And also the background, you know, my parents are Caribbean immigrants. It's not something we focus on. And also, I didn't want to be like the stereotype of just seeking entertainment as a form of social mobility. Yeah. And I say that because I just like making people laugh and I like doing funny stuff and doing stupid shit with my friends. Yeah. I like doing yeah. that. And, and you know, and comedy was always the way if I was nervous or I wanted to speak to a girl I liked, that's what I would use. So I just loved yeah. doing comedy. That was just, so it wasn't necessarily I wanted to make it a career. So for me to be able to do comedy for a living, like to me, it's like, you wake up or you you're born and you have to use a wheelchair and then one day you wake up and you can walk like that's how much it means to me wow i never thought i'd be able to do it for a living so that's even when it. i have a shit day it's like at least i have a choice yeah and for me as i say to other people that i've spent the other i've spent time on the other side of the microphone okay and so that's why i say all money and stuff doesn't matter because it's the gift of being able to say what you want and people are listening is a rare gift that few people on earth get to enjoy yeah the being able to take something in your head and consciousness and make that something perceivable to other human beings is what separates us as a species from other animals. Like, yeah. When it comes to money and wealth and materialism, whoever had a Ferrari in the 80s, that car is trash now. <laughs> Nothing away from them, but those things do fall apart. The way you will be remembered on earth as a human being, no matter if you're famous or whatever, mm. is how you imprint on other people. So when you get the opportunity to do that on a large scale, you have to realize how important that is and how much an opportunity is. That is more important than anything else. Like as human beings, yeah. what you do in terms of your consciousness and how that touches the consciousness of other human beings will last longer than your flesh, any car you can buy, any bank account you can have. So I say that, that you know, don't think of it like a job or any expectations. That can yeah. be for anyone. If you draw a picture because it makes you feel good, write a poem, write 16 bars, that's what matters. Something that fulfills you that no one else can take away from you that comes from your mind and your heart is the most important thing you can have as a human being. And that should be ever more clear now, given 2020. Exactly, exactly that. I mean, I f this is the most unconventional way of getting my top five tips of the mainstream because I feel like you summed up everything in that block of advice for comics. So thank you so much, Dane, because you- I, I And also, Ramel, don't, let's thank you for being on the show as well. Oh. If people don't know, Ramel's also involved doing amazing voiceover on the show. And that is kind of the ethos of the show as well, is again, like I said, taking people I know who are on the cusp of legendary status. Thank and, you. you know, all being joined in this journey to, uh, yeah, realizing their famous status. Thank you. But next series, I want to be on the on the list though. <laughs> I 
what 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 should you got me on the list this series? <laughs> Wait, am I am I on the list? You'll see. Once the pilot goes to series, it's all coming out. Don't worry. Okay, cool. Well, I'm just throwing it in there. Anything you think we miss, I want to know. Like, you know, okay. it's a journey. Like I said, I am working as comedy, like I said, is politics. And so okay. I am a civil servant for the people. <laughs> yes. So you let me know what I can need to make the thing pop as much as possible, Ramel. And my ears are always open. Minister of Comedy, Dame Baptiste. I love <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the, the clues in the name. There we go. There we go. Now, I really appreciate you allowing me to be a part of it, but also just creating this for all of us to enjoy. Poke a little bit of fun, but also you're getting deep. So I really appreciate the way you've delivered this so that people can come with it without offence. Just listen, listen and enjoy, please. It's, it's that That's time. it. And before anything else, it's a comedy show. It's very funny with very funny people in it. So if nothing else, just watch a good show and enjoy it to the audience out there. Definitely. Well, Bamus is out on BBC iPlayer from 6am, Tuesday the 12th of January 2021. You're doing it big for 2021. I love it. Um, Dane, let everyone know where they can find you. Um, you can find me on all your good socials. I'm on Insta, Twitter, at Al. Um, I'm also on my website, which is damebaptiste.co.uk, if you want to find out about four dates. But yeah, I'm just usually about, you know, just follow me in it. Just uh, send me <laughs> on the roads. Tweet me. Like I said, I'm a man of the people. So uh, yes. yeah, I'm usually knocking around. Amazing. Thank you so much. It's been my absolute pleasure to have you on the mainstream. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the mainstream podcast with me, Ramel London. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple and Spotify and follow us at the mainstream UK and at Ramel underscore London.